All right, we have made it to the end of 1 Peter. This is our last sermon in uh, the, the book of 1 Peter. And uh, today we're going to be talking about family. And one of the things about family is you don't get to choose your family. You don't get to choose the members of your family. You don't get to choose who they are. We all have those odd people in our family, don't we? When we get together for Christmas and we invite that uncle or that auntie or this cousin and they come in and you know there's going to be be some issues. You know there's a bit of friction and we don't really want them to come, but at the same time, they're family. And we don't really like them, but if they got in trouble, we wouldn't. If they got themselves in some strife, who responsible for it? Us. They're family, right? Well, interestingly, at the end of 1 Peter here, we're going to be talking about family. Church and the people that we see here, look around, they are your family. Now, how good is it when you get to choose your family? Well, we didn't get that choice here at church, did we? It was the people that God put in the right place at the right time who have come here. And we have to love these people, whether they're the awkward uncle or the weirdo cousin, they're our family and we still love them and we're still going to care for them and we're still going to do everything that we need to do as family together. The that I want to share, the first point is this, the true grace of God. Uh, my second point is the chosen church in Babylon. And my third point is the familial love of the church. And so we're going to be looking right at that first bit that's, that says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And, and today we're looking at the conclusion of 1 Peter. It's been 24 weeks. Can you believe it? This is the 24th week in this letter. We've done almost half a year in 1 Peter, only five chapters. And as you guys have known, you may be thinking, well, if you preach through it three verses at a time, you can stretch it out to a 24-week period. Through the preaching, through these words being read, that it is jam-packed with gems. It is full of wisdom that is useful for today. Gospel truth, paradigm-shifting thoughts, uh, application that's just going to radically change the way that you live. But most importantly, hope and encouragement when we're going through trials, when we're going through sufferings, when things haven't gone our way, when God has allotted to us some times of hardship. And we're in the last section. This is probably what you call the postscript. This is, first Peter's pretty much done, and Peter's now adding on to the end of it what's called a postscript. It's the final, something to end the letter. And for Peter, uh, he's not just writing a theological short paper on various issues, he's writing a personalized letter to real men and women who are living in real places. And he was sending these churches all over Asia Minor to these churches that he knows. He knows some of them by name and he cares for them deeply. And he wants them to know these truths because these truths are so important. And you can see in the way that he uh, finishes up his letter how much he cares for these churches. It's not merely some guy pontificating and, and sharing truth. It's a man who loves these people and they're family to him. And he's giving them a farewell as if he was indeed writing to family. Now, these churches are his brothers and sisters, his comrades. He wants them well prepared, not just for trial, but for eternity. He wants them fruitful and blessed and thriving, while at the time, the nations seem to be raging all around them. See, they're at home in the church. They were exiles, right? Remember the series, it's been called Chosen Exiles. They're exiles. They've been abandoned by their native people. Whether they were a Jew, 
or a Greek. But although they were abandoned by the world, although they fell out of favor with the world, they have found favor with God. And they have come into the church of the most holy God and been embraced and loved there. And now it can be easy to dismiss these farewells. We come to the end of the, the, chap, uh, the chapters and who here admits that when you come to the end of one of the letters, you spend a lot of time in the postscript? I mean, not many of us spend a lot of time. We're just like, oh yeah, the tying up ends and then we move on. But we don't realize that I got a significant amount out of here that I had to cut out because of how much content I could have put in this sermon. I decided not to because I don't want to put you guys through that. But never dismiss this, the weight of glory you can find in every word written in the Holy Scriptures. These parting farewells are so important. If they weren't important, I'll guarantee that the Holy Spirit would not have included them when he was penning through Peter, 1 Peter. Now, he lets us know that the letter he has sent to the churches in Asia Minor were written by this guy named Silvanus. So, it was common practice in this time, when you wanted to send a letter to someone, you don't write the letter. I know that sounds a bit strange, but you would, you would dictate to someone else. You would get someone else to write the letter for you. We do a little bit of dictation now. You might get your phone out and say, hey, Siri, send blah, blah, blah to something, someone else. Well, Sylvanus is kind of the Siri for Peter in a way. He was the guy that Peter could say, hey, Sylvanus, I need a letter to be written. So you're the one that's going to do it. And you can imagine Peter, who's been a fisherman his whole life. He's probably not that great at handwriting. His handwriting is probably not that great. He probably hasn't spent a lot of time in it. So he equips Sylvanus who probably was a really good scribe, someone who knows what's going on, someone who's able to write this letter with neat handwriting and write small enough that you can fit a lot of stuff on a little bit of parchment because that's what they used to do. Because you've got to remember, you had to be precise because these parchments and these inks that you're going to be writing on were like half a year's wage for a, a soldier at the time. Imagine that. You don't mess around. That's why you dictate. You make sure that the best guy is writing those letters. You don't want to write because one stroke wrong and you have to rub out that letter, man, that's a lot of space that you've just lost. That's a lot of money that you've just lost. The Apostle Paul, likewise, he dictated these letters to someone else, and he would have someone else write them on his behalf. And it's not normal for an age, but it is the most frequent method used to write letters. Sometimes it was a collaboration. I mean, Sylvanus could have collaborated with Peter and they could have agonized over what's the best way to write this so that we can jam-pack the most amount of information in the smallest amount of space. Uh, there have been times where I've collaborated with my wife over a message that I want to send with someone. I'm like, Beck, can I read this message to you? Does this sound all right? And she collaborates. Oh, you might want to change this writing. Oh, this might be a bit too harsh. And I'm thankful that she collaborates with me. But the, le the message is still my message. I'm still the one who pushes send on it. And so Peter, he describes Silvanus here as a faithful brother. And he sure is, because Silvanus shows up 17 times all throughout the New Testament. You may be thinking, that's like the first name I've heard this guy, the first time I've heard this guy's name. He shows up um, through Paul's letters and he shows up in the book of Acts. And that's because Silvanus is a Latin name. There is a Greek version of it known as Silas. And you may remember Silas. And Silas, which is a great name to give to a kid, by the way, was a prophet and an elder of the church. He was a big deal, Silas. He was one of the like forefront foundation layers of the church. If you had the apostles up here, the guys that were the disciples of Christ, and then you add Paul on there, Silas had second rung up on that authority structure. He was one of the most amazing men of God. Acts describe him as one of the leading 
among the brothers, a missionary to the Gentiles. He had a huge impact on planting churches, the particular churches that Peter is writing to right now. They all know Silvanus. He was instrumental in setting this all up. And so obviously it would have meant a lot to these churches to have Silas or Silvanus written here. We know Silas was imprisoned alongside Paul, wasn't he? He was in jail with Paul in Philippi. He was instrumental in the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his family. He was no stranger to persecution. Silas was no stranger to controversy. His ministry led to an enormous riot in Ephesus alongside Paul. He was kind of like Paul's sidekick. When Barnabas was out, Silas was in. He knew how to suffer for the name of Christ. And that's why Peter calls him here a faithful brother, because he was faithful. He had faced a lot. He was a soldier of Christ and one that Peter trusted to dictate his letter to. And here is how Peter describes his letter. He describes it this way. He says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The reason we can trust this letter of 1 Peter is because it is, Peter says here, the true grace of God. It finds its origin in the inalterable character of God, the solid foundation and mighty fortress of God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character doesn't change. Sometimes, some people, when they read the Bible, they think that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is different. Or they think the God in the book of Genesis is different to the God in the book of Job, or different to the God over here. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He is not kept in a box. And he doesn't have to act the same way every single time because he acts consistently with his character and his character never changes, but the context from which he acts does. He has mercy where he wants to have mercy and he hardens those who he wants to harden. Peter, as an apostle of God, he himself received these teachings from Christ and he passed them down. Peter didn't come up with them. It's not because Peter is such a brilliant guy that Peter has come up with all of these different things. It was given to him by God. The origin comes from God. When we read the words of Peter, we know that we are reading the gospel, not just the message of how God saves us, but how the gospel applies to every aspect of our lives. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would teach us in all things, John 14, 26. And the same Holy Spirit guided Peter to write down exactly the words that God wanted on this page. And that includes everything we're reading right now. It's actually quite astonishing when you think of the New Testament. Because the New Testament, including Peter's writings, we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of this. That makes up about 2.6 million pages of biblical text. I can't even tell you what that would have been worth. And how much the early church treasured these writings that were passed down to them by the apostles. And how accurately they transcribed them from generation to generation. We have all 5,800, well not all of them, but we have a collection of a whole bunch of them. And we bring them together and we can compare them. And astonishingly, it's almost 100% accurate. Because the early church took this seriously. Why? This is the true grace of God. The true grace of God. So what does Peter say? Stand firm in it. Brothers and sisters, stand firm in it. We live in a world where so much truth just gets blasted at us, doesn't it? There's so many people that try to tell you what's true. 
If you ever meet someone who's into CrossFit, you can be guaranteed that it's going to come up multiple times in the conversation. We've all met that vegan person, right? And they try to convince you that eating meat is bad. Everyone is trying to tell you what the truth is. And everyone comes from their different perspectives. And some of it's true, some of it's not true. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that necessarily it's wrong. But we have to stand firm in unalterable truth because men change, women change. Our viewpoints are constantly in flux. Some of you guys who are a bit older, you remember in your childhood how different Australia was and how all the beliefs, the common beliefs that everyone holds are just so different now. We don't even believe the same things anymore. The people that you grew up with back in those days right now would be some of the worst people and people would denounce them, right? Because we change, we're fickle, we're humans. But God's word, Peter says, stand firm in it. It will keep your feet from stumbling. It has kept the feet of all the Christians who have come before us from stumbling. We never outgrow this truth. It never ceases to be relevant. It never ceases to cut to the quick and it never ceases to uh, teach us in truth. God doesn't change and neither does the truth. So brothers and sisters, stand firm in it. That leads me to my second point. The chosen church in Babylon. Verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark my son. Now here we have a very interesting verse because no two scholars seems to agree on who this she is and who where this Babylon place is. Well, I'm sure you can find two scholars to agree, but it's, it's very hard to find people that seem to come to the same conclusion. Uh, some people think the she is Peter's wife because Peter had a wife, whether you know that or not, and he had a family. Very interesting. We don't know much about them, but there are people probably walking around today that are descended from the Apostle Peter, which is a weird thought to have. Others think maybe he's referring to a woman in Babylon who they all know. And so she sends them greetings, and obviously the the church is, but we don't. It'd be really weird for that to be the case, though, because he mentions Mark and Silvanus, so it'd be bizarre for him to have this unnamed female that he's talking about. The she, I'm convinced, is in reference to a church. The churches were always described in feminine terms because the church collectively make up the bride of Christ. Paul refers to her as heavenly Jerusalem, the mother of us all. Okay, well, if that's who the she is, then where is Babylon? What's going on with Babylon? Some have said that Peter is simply referring to the church in the city of Babylon. There was a real-life city called Babylon in Mesopotamia. But around this time that Peter's writing, it's pretty much like a tiny community and, and by the time that Trajan comes in, about 112 AD, it is gone. There's nothing there. It's ruins. So it would have been a deteriorating community if it was the real-life Babylon. Uh, some have claimed it is a metaphorical term for the city of Rome. And that's probably one of the most common viewpoints of this, that this is talking about the city of Rome. But to understand what the city of Babylon represents, we have to do a little bit more digging. I mean, I named this city, as I said, uh, sorry, this series before, Chosen Exiles, because Peter describes the churches of Asia Minor in this way. He says in 1 Peter 1.1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect exiles. That's why I named this series that, and that sets the frame. And it's interesting that in one of the last verses, and the first verse, we have an allusion to exile. Exile comes right at the forefront. Now, we remember... Back in the day, the Israelites, back in the days of Jeremiah the prophet, 
were sent into exile when King Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem. And those who remained alive, like Daniel, remember the story of Daniel, were carted all the way on a thousand plus kilometer journey on foot as slaves to Jerusalem to be, uh, sorry, to Babylon, to be slaves in Babylon. It was one of the most brutal judgments God has ever given to uh, his people Israel. And they lived in a foreign system, a foreign culture, a hostile religious system, a world that is hostile to the Most High God. And it's the same for the church, who were dispersed, living in the same hostile world, the same hostility towards God, the same religious systems that rejected God as their king. In the book of Revelation, for instance, we get the whore of Babylon. She's described... I, I, did, I couldn't even count, it was like 12 times as the great city, probably more than that. And she's dressed in the garment of a priest in purple and scarlet and drunk with the blood of the saints. We see in Revelation, she acts as a priest. She's like a mediator between the nations and God, but she is nothing more than an adulterer. And she's overthrown and her judgment is harsh. Revelation 18.21 Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. See, Babylon is very clearly a metaphorical term to describe a city. It's not, I don't think it's talking about the literal city of Babylon. I think it is taking the metaphorical language of Babylon and applying it to a city. And so which city is it? In the book of Revelation, we know the beast is the city on seven hills. And that is just as clear as it gets. It's Rome. Rome is a city on seven hills. It's, it's obviously Rome. But what about the whore of Babylon? You see, she rides on the beast. She's distinct from the beast. She receives her authority and power from the beast. And her power is established by the will and whims of this beast. Uh, John gives us this important clue to understand it. When he talks about the great city, Revelation 11.8, he says this, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Uh, uh, John is talking about these two witnesses of Christ and they're killed in the great city. And he says it happens to be the city where Christ was crucified. John also picks up on the language of Jeremiah that Ian read for us before, Jeremiah 23, 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. There's this language that is often used, this metaphorical term, and it is applied to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, John also has this charge against her. He says in Revelation um, 18, 24, he says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. See, not only is this Babylon and Revelation responsible for all the blood of the saints, but who else is here? The prophets. The prophets are here. John says she is guilty of the blood of the prophets as well. And many of the prophets in the Old Testament that God sent to Israel were killed at the hands of the Israelites, many of them in Jerusalem. Uriah, one of the prophets, was the last to be killed. And Jesus picks up on this. 
He has this to say about the Jerusalem of his day. When he came to the city as a triumphant king and declares judgment over Jerusalem, here's what he says to Jerusalem. Matthew 23, 34 to 35. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. That is a hard judgment from Jesus on the city of Jerusalem because they were going to kill him. And not only were they going to kill him, but they were going to persecute and pursue all of his followers and try to kill all of them. He says the blood from Abel, remember Abel and Cain? From Abel to Zechariah, the last to be killed in the Old Testament, will fall on these people. Their hatred and their persecution of the saints, who they will kill and persecute from town to town, will make them the archetypal enemy of God. Which is a little bit ironic, isn't it? Because the Jews thought they were doing the will of God. They thought they were offering service to God by persecuting the church. Jesus accuses them of being just like their forefathers who killed the prophets, just about to kill him and continue to pursue all his followers. This is why I believe very strongly that she who was at Babylon means the church in Jerusalem. This is why I interpret it that way. Because the church in Jerusalem had undergone some of the worst and most brutal persecutions of any church at that time. And they probably rank in like the top three or five of churches of all time in terms of the horror that happened in Jerusalem. And this primarily Jewish church who are right in the thick of exile are also in the very city that ought to be their home. Jerusalem, right? They're in Jerusalem. That ought to be the home of the people of God. And there they are in exile. There in Jerusalem, they're in Babylon. There in Jerusalem, they are in exile. And although Babylon has been set aside for destruction, the church that resides in Jerusalem is, Peter says, likewise chosen. Though she is facing hardship, God sees and he knows and he will vindicate those Christians when he comes in judgment over the city of Jerusalem. And as we know in history, destroys it in 70 AD. And you know what's miraculous about it? All the Christians, because they knew of what Jesus said about Jerusalem, fled the city to the, uh, fled Jerusalem to the city of Pella. They were the only ones to survive. Everyone else were massacred. He rescued the Christians, but punished all those who had been persecuting the church. Remember what he said to Paul when he's on the road to Damascus. Jesus says to Paul, well, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? All of these were attacks against God and his son, Two says that he will destroy all those who try to throw off his shackles. He will dash them to pieces. And the destruction of Jerusalem was a terrifying show of the power of Christ and what he can do when he dashes a nation to pieces like pottery. That church sends her greetings to all the churches in Asia Minor. I want you to notice something about it. If if I'm correct, and this is the church in Jerusalem, they have faced horrific circumstances. They've had their houses plundered, everything taken from them. They've seen brothers, sisters, children killed at the hands of the Jews. And they are not self-pitying. They are not miserable in the face of all their hardships, but still send their greetings to all the other churches that haven't had it as tough as them. But she sends her love and support. All of those churches in the Great Dispersion And like a little leaven will leaven a whole lump, these little mustard seeds all dispersed across the Roman Empire 
will sprout into kingdom fruit and take over the Roman Empire. This is the family we belong to. This is the church we belong to. And I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but those Christians that lived back then are your brothers and sisters now. You will meet them one day. And when you meet them, they're not, you're not going to meet them as some far estranged relations who live during a different context and time, who you don't relate to, so you're going to hang out with your 21st century crew. That's not how it's going to be. They're your brothers and sisters. You belong to them. They belong to you. It leads me to my third point, the familial love of the church. Let's read verse 13 to the end again. Peter says, She who was at Babylon, who was likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You can see how just woven through this last bit is the language of family, right? Silvanus, our faithful brother, not Silvanus, our faithful servant, Silvanus, our faithful Christian, Silvanus, our faithful brother. He says, Mark here, my son, Mark, my son. This Mark, just by the way, is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's the same guy who traveled with Peter. And it's actually probably around this time that this letter was written that Mark wrote his Gospel because Mark wrote his Gospel with Peter. Peter was the chief witness with, with which Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so it's probably around this time, and we don't, we don't actually know when it is, but it's a good guess. And so uh, Mark, he was this young man. Uh, you can see this weird occasion when Jesus is getting arrested. There's a young man who kind of comes in to see what's going on. He's only wearing a night robe, and someone seizes him, and he has to run away naked. And it's like, that's probably Mark, because it's a weird story to include otherwise. And it's this nameless guy. He's probably like, yeah, I was there at the arrest of Jesus. I don't like to go into it, but that's what happened. But he's this young man and he affectionately gets referred to here as the son of Peter. He's known Peter right from at least the late stages of Jesus' ministry. He saw Jesus, uh, Mark, and, and Peter's the one who probably discipled and trained Mark. And so Peter encourages all the churches, which is a natural follow-on from the thing he's been building here, to greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, firstly, this isn't the kind of kiss that you expect to see between a husband and a wife but it's the kind of expressive kisses on the cheek that you might see a Greek family doing. If you guys ever met, met Greek people, they'll just force kisses on the cheek upon you without you even like consenting to anything. They'll just run up, embrace you, kiss on both cheeks. They're just excited to see you. It's kind of like a massive culture shock. It's just not something that we're used to. And this is very Mediterranean. Whether you go to Greece or Lebanon or Israel or Turkey or Italy, People will throw their arms around you in a big kiss. It's big and it's just kind of like out there. They want to greet you as warmly as possible. And this is uh, the kind of love that only happened, usually in this time, between family members. This is something that a mother would do to her children or a father to their children or when your auntie would come around. Big kisses, big, big greeting. And Peter says, no, do it to everyone. Your church is family. So treat them like family. Give them the kiss of love. Now, it's a bit of an unfortunate uh, phrase to use in the English. Uh, Peter refer, uh, Paul sorry, refers to it as the holy kiss, which I prefer the holy kiss. That sounds a bit more, you know, like restrained and controlled than the kiss of love. Uh, but Paul refers to the holy kiss, not just once, but five times. Already we've got six times the kisses showing up and you'll be really surprised that they actually show up a lot more than that. We see Judas, right? When Judas sees Jesus in the garden, he identifies Jesus 
but the man that I will kiss. He goes up, greets Jesus, Rabbi, and gives him a kiss. You know that's actually normal behavior? Because that's what they did at the time. You see uh, the prodigal son, when the prodigal son returns and the father, what does the father do? Receives the son by embracing him and kissing him. We see in Acts 20, 37, the Ephesian elders say farewell to Paul by giving him a kiss. Christ even rebukes the Pharisee who invited him over for a meal and a woman is weeping at his feet and wiping his uh, feet with her hair and kissing his feet. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisee because he says, you guys haven't given me a kiss, but this girl has not stopped kissing my feet. And the whole point is they ought to have kissed him when he came, welcomed him as a guest and they didn't do it. And Jesus rebukes them for it. You ought to have given me a kiss. Again and again and again, the kiss of love shows itself in the New Testament. Now, before I get ahead of myself, I'm just going to say up front, I'm not advocating that we're going to start kissing each other, okay? I'm not advocating that we practice that so you guys can just breath of relief. You're probably already imagining that one person who you don't want to kiss from. This was a cultural practice of the first century. And I'm just going to say, if you live near the Mediterranean, expect to get that kind of affection. Just embrace it if you do go down there. But however, in the West, it's kind of gone out of fashion to give people a kiss on the cheek. I mean, Nana probably didn't get the memo, but it's not something that we practice much anymore. But what we need to understand here is the principle behind the direction that Peter is giving to us, and that is you greet people like family. Now, this implies that you already are good at greeting people in your family, which I'm not so sure we are. When you show up, you come home, Is it customary that whoever arrives, you greet them at the door? Or at least the person who arrives, you go and greet every single person that's in your house. Well, if you grew up in my household, no one even knew you arrived. You would walk in, everyone's in their respective rooms, no one exits their rooms unless they want food or need to go to the toilet. And so no one ever greeted you and no one ever farewelled you. And it seemed like it was amazing. I had this freedom to come and go as I wanted. But I look back at it and I think, No, I'd rather my parents noticed, and I'd rather my brothers noticed, and I'd rather my family noticed. We have to treat each other, we have to treat our actual family like family before we can even begin to start treating our church like family. Even I have been thinking, when I get home, how do I greet everyone? I do greet everyone, It, it does happen, but it ought to be more personal. Each individual person gets some attention. When I go over to my in-laws, I ought to greet everyone that's there and not just, not just a little high, but an actual greeting. It's, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I'm just, I just don't come from a background where we do this. And so I'm reading this passage and I'm just going, oh, I, 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 I've got a lot to repent for. I've got a lot to change. And I don't know if you're a little bit like me, but this is the way the church was. Uh, Paul encourages Timothy to treat people in the church as if they were family. He says to Timothy, an elder within the church, here's how you ought to act. 1 Timothy 5.1. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That's how we ought to view each other. We're family. We're a bunch of weirdos, but we're family. And we love everyone in our family. We ought to, at the very least, make it a priority to greet everyone warmly and affectionately when we see them at church. Truly warmly and affectionately. We ought not to, uh, we ought not to just avoid people we don't want to 
greet. We don't want to show partiality when we greet people. We don't want to give someone a really, really warm greeting with like a 10-step handshake and then someone else a little, a little tiny wave from a big distance. We should know everyone by name, including the children. Because which grandparent here doesn't know all the names of their grandchildren and won't greet every one of their grandchildren by name? Which one of us parents don't know our children and wouldn't greet our children? So we should greet everyone by name. We should give them a warm handshake and a warm smile, a side hug or a fist bump, whatever you can do to show that you are happy to see that person. Of course, this assumes you do it with your family, so work on that. And as you work on it with your family, it will naturally come out into the church. And this is true for a farewell as well, not just greetings, but for farewells. Make sure that you get to say goodbye to people as they're heading out. Now, I know it's tempting to pull an Irish exit when, you know, you're ready, church is wrapped up, you just kind of little slip out the door, no one notices that you're gone, but please don't do that. Please say farewell before you go. If you're more of an awkward or shy person, make sure you teach yourself to look the person in the eye. Make sure you smile. Make sure you learn how to greet warmly. Don't let your shyness or your apprehension get in the way of obeying God. When you stand and you give an account to God, He's not going to excuse you for rudeness because you feel awkward. It's not a valid excuse. He's not going to buy it. Husbands, don't leave your house without giving a kiss to your wife and your kids. Or if they're older, a hug or a pat on their head, whatever works for your family. It is particularly important, men, for us to do this because we set the culture of our family. Don't rely on your wife to do all that work. You've got to set the tone. Your wife needs that kind of warmness and love. She needs the kiss on the way out. She needs the warm reception on the way home. Your children need it too. And finally, Peter concludes his, our passage today with this. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There is an amazing peace we all find in Christ, isn't there? The reason we're family is because of Christ. The reason we're at peace with each other and peace with God is because of the work of Christ on the cross. And Peter knows that this peace can only be felt by those who belong to Christ and give their allegiance to Him. In 1 Peter 3.18, he says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In Christ, we have peace with God. We are reconciled to God and no longer His enemies. His enemies anymore. You're not merely just his friends. You're his children. You're his family. We are a people set aside to be distinct before him. He says in 1 Peter 2, 4-5, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is why we persist in our desire to be a family, not just in our households, but in the household of God, this spiritual household, this holy priesthood built up in Christ, made to be at peace because of Christ. We are at peace with God and together because of Christ. And though the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, we are secure and hopeful in the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is only through Christ that any of this is even possible. It is only through Christ that we're all sitting here. None of us would be here if not for Christ. None of us. Peter says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
There is salvation in no one else. The peace comes through Christ. There is hope in no other name. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Set your hope fully on him. Grow in your love for your brothers and sisters. Persevere in trial and stand firm on the gospel of truth. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to belong to your most righteous and holy church, to be numbered amongst her people, to be given a royal priesthood and a role among the nations by which we can do your work. I pray, Lord, that the message of peace we find in Christ will have its way in our hearts so that we are loving people, that we love our family as we ought, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, that this church you have given us to, we would really see as our family, that we would love every member, that we would know them all by name, that we would greet them warmly as you have greeted us in in Christ, that we would welcome them into our community just as you welcomed us in Christ, that we would send them off with our farewell just as you have sent us off into the world to be your people. Lord, I pray for all our families that we would be growing in our ability to greet and farewell one uh, one another the way that you have called us to. And Father, I pray that when we have sorted out our own lives and our own families, that that would bleed into the church, that we would love each other in truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would be like Peter, that we would be like the church in Babylon, that we would be able to not to look past the trials and tribulations and miseries that we face in this life and not be self-pitying, but to still send our greetings, to still encourage, to still love. And Father, I pray as we come to the end of 1 Peter that this wonderful letter would be found in our hearts, that we would meditate on it day and night, that we would come back to it again and again and again and drink deeply from this rich well. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.